0: this is the citizen of heaven podcast number 184 the renaissance and corruption i'm hal hammonds and i am a citizen of heaven and your embedded correspondent in satan's world thanks for checking in this week even modern catholic leadership will agree that the church was horribly corrupt in the middle ages systems were put in place specifically to keep the elites in their place and the peasants in theirs This week we will discuss God's plan to keep churches free of corruption, a hero, a song and legend who is probably anything but, the angst we feel when we see the powers that be going down the same crooked road, and the impossibility of winning God's game by using Satan's tactics. We'll start with what I've been preaching. When you see the word sound in the New Testament, you're looking at one of two different things. There are a couple of words that are translated sound that refer to noise. In fact, our word for phone and our word for echo come from those words. The one we're focusing on that especially occurs in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus is a word regarding wellness or health. The sound doctrine is a phrase that Paul uses frequently with reference to what he has taught in times past and what he is encouraging Timothy and Titus to teach to others as well. It is the opposite of the strange doctrines that he mentions in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. He describes those doctrines as paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. This is what the strange doctrine does. It keeps God from accomplishing his plans. It keeps God's people from accomplishing God's plans. It is not focused on the things of God, which gives rise to the question, what exactly are they focused on? Go a couple of verses deeper in 1 Timothy 1, you see maybe an answer to that. We see a long list of horrible, horrible sins, unholy, profane, those who kill fathers and mothers, and he caps it off in verse 10 by referring to whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. See, the sound teaching or the sound doctrine that Paul espouses, that which he gave to Timothy and Titus, these things are intended, at least in part, to keep godly people away from immorality, from ungodliness, from bad behavior the glorious gospel of the blessed God that he goes on to mention in verse number 11, that's the opposite of this carnal teaching. Now, why might it be that children of God, we're talking about church leaders here, why would they teach these things that seem so fundamentally opposed to God's things? Well, if you go over to chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, maybe we get a bit of an answer to that. He mentions, starting in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, that's our word again, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, see the words that Paul is preaching, the words Timothy and Titus presumably are preaching, these are Jesus' words. And when we preach the same thing, we're preaching Jesus' words. When somebody preaches something else, they're not preaching Jesus' words, right? What about these ones? He says in verse four, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Going through verse five. So here's the motivation that we're talking about. This is not furthering God's cause. This is furthering the teacher's cause by sounding important, by sounding educated, by sounding different and imposing that different view on others, this one elevates himself, makes himself important. Godliness becomes a means of gain, maybe financial gain, maybe popularity gain, maybe power gain, whatever it happens to be. This is about his ends, not about Jesus' ends. You understand then how incompatible this kind of message is And why it is so critical for us as the people of God, even 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul, to stand up for what is actually the gospel, what has always been the gospel. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul writes, Retain the standard of sound words, there it is again, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That's verse 14. The Holy Spirit has given us the same message that he gave the Apostle Paul, and it is every bit as much of a treasure now as it ever has been. We guard that treasure. We make sure no one comes in and tries to rob us of it or replace it with something else, something that is lesser by the very definition of it that is lesser. If we truly value the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we truly value this treasure, we're not going to allow it to be substituted out. Why in the world would we want to do that? Who would want to sub out God's message for some other kind of message? Well, Paul answers that also. Skip down to chapter 4 in 2nd Timothy. We find out in verse number 3 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's our phrase again. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. When we start catering to our own preferences, our own tastes, we may very well find, in fact, we quite likely will find, that the error is more palatable than the truth. Does that mean we satisfy ourselves with the lie? Does that mean that we starve ourselves of the truth? I sure hope not. Because the one gospel that Paul preached is still the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. The only gospel that is in fact such. Some fast-talking preacher may be able to persuade certain ones that he's right, that his way is better. But in reality, he's as corrupt as whatever kind of middle-aged pope you might want to talk about. He's just as self-serving. He's just as carnal. He's just as separated from the grace of Jesus Christ. We owe it to ourselves to heap to ourselves teachers who love the Lord, who love his truth, and not be satisfied with anything less than that. This is what I've been reading. I mentioned last week that A World Lit Only by Fire, written by William Manchester, was kind of the impetus for this week's conversation on the Renaissance. Manchester cites a Yorkshire gravestone that reads as such, and if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to try to butcher the Old English. I will try to translate it as best I can into modern English. Here underneath this little stone lies Robert. Earl of Huntington, never were an archer that were as good, and people called him Robin Hood. Such outlaws as he and his men will England never see again. Died 24 December 1247. According to Manchester, this is the only evidence of the existence of Robin Hood. He does appear to have lived. But there's no evidence whatsoever that he was the hero that we have seen in movies and stories and Disney cartoons. Every indication is that Robin Hood was just a criminal. And I think there is a natural tendency for the downtrodden class, people who feel like they have no chance, to look up to someone who does not settle for that who says, the system is wrong, I'm going to rebel against it. In the movies, it tends to work out that they take their technically illegal gains and they share it with others, to the detriment of the powers that be. In reality, corruption is corruption, whether it's the people in power or the people being trodden on. And here we are, centuries later, still in love with the one who works outside the law and does the law's job better than the law does. Jesse James is a hero. Bonnie and Clyde are heroes. And by the way, there's no legend about Jesse James or Bonnie and Clyde robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Is there something in our psyche that wishes that we were brave enough, that we were resourceful enough to take the law into our own hands? Not for some greater good, but for our own good. We're sick and tired of the people in power getting rich. It's time for me to get rich. People who are rooted in the Bible, people who are rooted in the gospel, should know better than that. Diotrephes is a great example of this, a man who wasn't going to take it anymore, one who had been bossed around one too many times by John and the rest of the apostles, and said, you know what? I'm taking matters into my own hands. This church is going to go my way instead of your way. John writes on this subject. In 3 John, starting verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. And it's in this context that he says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. John has this tendency in his epistles to write very, very simplistically. This is a bad man. We know he's a bad man because he's doing bad things. Don't imitate that. Value good things. And if that means putting up with a government that doesn't care very much about you, a government that, yes, in fact, may be raising too many taxes on you, that may mean doing exactly what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, going the extra mile. I think we push back against that conclusion, as obvious as it is, because we really, really don't want to do that. But the New Testament is very clear about this. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17 talk about how we're supposed to submit to every human institution to honor the king. And the king, by the way, back then was not very honorable. By doing this, by submitting to authority... We show the faith that we have in our God, the faith that says he will set things right. I don't have to set things right myself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul refers to that proverb in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. We believe that God is in control. And because we believe that, we don't have to be in control. And by in control, we don't mean the rich are going to get it one of these days. And there's going to be a happy ending for all us poor, wretched souls. That's not what we mean, at least not in this life. The faith that we have in our hearts that says God is going to accomplish his will is also the same faith that tells us that that is going to be accomplished primarily in heavenly realms. We rejoice in our adversity because the reward that we have in heaven is great. And because so many others have gone in the same path and suffered the same slings and arrows. Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, having faith that God is in control will get us through times of corruption, times of suffering, times of inequity. I'm not suggesting you don't petition the government for redress of grievances, but if you do and things get worse instead of better, that doesn't mean God's plan isn't working. That just means it's time for us to decide whether we are trying to accomplish God's plan or our own plan. This is what I've been hearing. So I was checking out the news today and come to find out that there is currently a prominently placed government official who is under suspicion of abusing his or her public trust, abusing his or her power and prominence for personal financial gain. Wow. Did not see that coming. This particular episode is scheduled to drop on October 11th in the year of our Lord 2022. If you are catching this somewhat later than that, and if you have not yet come to appreciate my sense of humor... You may currently be scrambling to the internet trying to figure out exactly what public official Hal was talking about. Well, let me spare you the effort before you get too far down the rabbit hole. There is no public official. Well, let me rephrase that. There are dozens of these public officials, if not hundreds. Maybe even thousands. Who knows? It's depressing to think about. And this is not a trend that started in the last decade or so or within my lifetime. Solomon wrote about it way back in the day in Ecclesiastes chapter five and verse eight. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight for one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. That's what the kids call these days bureaucracy, corruption hardwired into the system. It's what the Black Lives Matter people protest about. It's what the... Occupy Wall Street people protested about before that. It's what the flower children were protesting about back in the 60s. On and on and on we can go. It might even be fair to say that the good politicians, the noble politicians, the selfless politicians, the ones who truly serve the interests of the people, sometimes even against their own interests, these are the exceptions, not the rule you can get frustrated at that. You can jump into the middle of the cesspool hip deep and try to fix the problem. You can post memes about it on social media. Your approach is your business. But let me suggest to you at least this, that any kind of thought that an educated, well-meaning, and certainly a godly culture can somehow eliminate the problems of selfishness and self-service and ego that oftentimes run rampant in the halls of power. I see no evidence historically, biblically, or otherwise to indicate that we can turn this tide around. For me personally, I am tired of looking for the lesser of two evils when I go to the ballot box. I am not satisfied with voting for someone who sort of, kind of, stands up for godly values. You and I may differ on exactly which politician is worse at this, or which political party is worse, but isn't that entire conversation more or less just spinning our wheels? Let's find something that we support, and then support that. And if we can't find anything that we can support, then we won't support anything. Ultimately, Again, borrowing from the title of this podcast, we are citizens of heaven, not of earth. And nothing that we do in our pursuit of justice and kindness and fairness and equity in this life, well-intentioned pursuits, by the way, certainly don't want to discourage that, but nothing that we do along those lines can be allowed to interfere with the real fight that we are engaged in in spiritual realms, I guess what I'm saying is be careful when you're hitching your wagon to a human being. Human beings will let you down. Our hope is not dependent on finding a diamond in all of this coal. The only real transformation that's going to take place is from the inside out, on an individual level, on a family level. So if you can find a candidate that works, by all means, support that candidate. But whatever you do or do not do in a political sphere, as we get frustrated with the ugliness and the unfairness of this world, continue to put the cause of Christ first. And if you are working up more enthusiasm for some person and his efforts or her efforts to clean up the mess, I humbly submit to you that maybe we've lost our way. Trust in Jesus put up with an ugly world while we wait for him to take care of his business in his way. This is what I've been playing. A couple of years ago, I visited a game called Architects of the West Kingdom. I want to go back there again this week. And before I do, Let me caution you, if you're relatively new to the show, if you haven't heard the episode in question, if you are caused to go back and see what else I said about this game or anything else, please do so with caution. I like to think that over the last three years or so, we have made some tremendous improvements with regard to my speech, with regard to outlining, with regard to theming, certainly with regard to technology. If you stuck with me through the entire time, glitches and all, thank you so much for that. If you haven't and you go back to listen to some old episodes and you still come back for more. Thank you so much for that. Anyway, Architects of the West Kingdom is a game with asymmetrical player powers. And what we mean by that is you and I don't play by the same rules, at least to a certain degree. I have certain advantages in gameplay that you don't have. And you have certain advantages that I don't have. At least in theory, this all evens out. and In our experience, it seems like it does. It's a very enjoyable game, very interesting game. One of the ways that we differ from one another or that we may differ is in a category called corruption, hence its role in the podcast this week. There are certain things that you do in the game that tend to be, thematically speaking, more noble than other things or less noble. For instance, you can build a cathedral. If they're going to let you in to work on the cathedral, you have to be pretty noble. You can go to the black market and get questionable quality goods at questionable prices. The noble people don't do that. They aren't allowed to do that. So there are advantages to being corrupt, and there are advantages to being blameless. The trick to this game is to play to your strengths. If you are a player who enters into the game with a certain relatively significant amount of corruption already on your record, that's probably the way you ought to play the game. You ought to play like a criminal. If you have very little corruption, you can use that to your advantage and play more of a cathedral strategy. You are who you are, essentially. And the most success that you're going to find is when you accept who you are and you play to your strengths. Personally, I have no ethical problem with doing that in a board game. We've discussed this in other contexts. I think you could be a criminal in a board game and not go to hell. That's me personally. You may differ. That's your right. But it does remind me of the role that corruption plays in the choices that we make in this life, who we are in the world. And thankfully, by the way, you don't have to remain who you are in the game, really, but especially in life. You can improve or degrade, as the case may be. You can choose not to play to your strengths. You can change your strengths in Jesus. The problem comes in when we try to have our cake and eat it too, when we try to live corrupt lives and then reap the benefits of noble lives. The Bible is quite consistent about this. You cannot do that. You cannot be welcomed into the temple of God to perform spiritual services when your lifestyle is given over to the things of the world, to carnality, to evil, to a rejection of all the principles that supposedly temple work is all about. Now, don't get me wrong on this. I don't want to overstate the importance of our own personal holiness because our own personal holiness is extraordinarily limited. There's a great scene given to us in Isaiah chapter six, especially verse five, where Isaiah, the young priest, is being called into service, and he knows how unworthy he is of this. I live in a land of unclean lips. My own lips are unclean, he says. And symbolically, God removes his sin with the touch of a coal from the holy fire. And then Isaiah is sent out into the world to preach God's words to a wicked nation, to an ungrateful nation, a nation, quite frankly, that is not worthy of this message. You're not going to enter into the presence of God because of your holiness. But what we can do is choose to live holy, righteous, noble lives to the best of our ability in the moment. Lean on his grace, lean on his mercy in our times of failure, because we will have times of failure. But to ultimately define ourselves as being people of God, people who want to enter into God's temple. I think that's the point of Psalm 15, where David writes, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. He's not saying these are the only things that God requires of us, and that anything not mentioned in Psalm 15 is of irrelevance. You can come into the presence of God doing horrible things that he doesn't happen to mention here. That's not his point. Nor is his point that if you are completely successful or even somewhat successful in all of these things. You have acquired by your own merit, by your own virtue, a place in the heart of God. I think David is saying here about godly attributes the same thing that many other Bible writers say, Old and New Testament alike. If you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be one of God's children, you need to look the part. You need to make an attempt Not a perfect attempt by any means. David is exhibit A of that. But if you try to be this kind of person that David describes here, if you try to be a person who tells the truth, who is kind to people, who honors holy things, who holds himself to a high moral standard, and even more than any of that, the one who seeks the presence of God in the first place, who is willing to submit to whatever rule God gives, this person... As he denies himself the benefits of corruption, as he denies himself the blessings that the world acquires for itself in various ways and various methods, he acquires for himself treasure in heaven, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 19, 20, 21. We put our treasure in him and he rewards us faithfully. Again, not because we were so righteous, because we climbed some kind of almost arbitrary scale of our own devising but rather because we have chosen to be this kind of person. And God is supporting that, and God is encouraging that, and ultimately God is rewarding that. A corruption-free life may not get you, in fact, almost certainly will not get you, all the things that can get someone who is living for this world. But don't let that discourage you. Because the things that a holy life, the things of a blameless life that God promises to you will never be found in any other way. So take joy in his blessings. Take joy in his promises. Pursue holiness, purity, godliness, all these wonderful things. It will be worth the extra effort. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.